Today we're wrapping up uh, this series that we've been in for seven weeks uh, that's entitled Follow Me. It's been all about the call of Jesus to be disciples, first century call, the call today for us to be his followers. And uh, I'm going to do just a real quick two minute rewind of what we've said thus far and uh, then wrap it up today. We began uh, seven weeks ago by talking about how this invitation of Jesus goes to everybody. Everyone has issued the same invitation, and that is very simply, you come follow me. And it's not an invitation to religion. It's not an invitation to a list of rules or even a code of conduct. It is ultimately an invitation to a relationship, and this has always been the heart of the matter. And some of the good news that we discovered along the way as we just looked at the calls of Jesus to different people is that if you feel like your life is so fouled up by sin and bad choices and just junk that it would disqualify you. The good news is you are absolutely qualified because it is a prerequisite that you be a sinner to be a follower of Jesus because those are the only people he ever called to follow him. And if you feel like maybe uh, you don't have your belief system all straight and you're not sure what you believe about God or what you believe about Jesus or the Bible and maybe that disqualifies you, not to worry because none of the first century followers of Jesus when they started out had any of that in order. Doubt is a real natural thing. Uncertainty. Uncertainty as to what, what you believe about God or about the Scriptures. Th those things are normal for somebody as they begin the process of following Jesus. And so that doesn't disqualify you in any way. Uh, beyond that, we saw that when you ask the question, well, what's the payoff if I answer the call of Jesus to come and follow him? It's kind of surprising to find that in terms of what Jesus talked about, he didn't talk a lot about the payoff of heaven and he didn't talk a lot about the payoff of being a better person and having an easier life. He talked about a faith that overcomes fear and being able to press through the hard stuff because of such an intimate relationship with him. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how as followers of Jesus, there is a dress code. Uh, that we are to put on certain things, and specifically that the thing that would mark us as his followers would be a very specific kind of love that we have for each other. And it gets spelled out uh, as compassion, kindness, humility, uh, gentleness, and patience. And if you were here that day, you know we talked about how when love hits the barnyard, chickens hug pigs. And if you weren't here that day, that means nothing to you. But when you hear chickens hug pigs, you can remember CKHGP, can't you? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then uh, last week we talked about how, uh, or two weeks ago, we talked about how following Jesus in the fine print, you find that it is going to cost you something. A lot of times we get sold a bill of goods about how you follow Jesus and life's going to be so much easier and better. The truth of the matter is, it's going to be difficult and it is going to be costly. And then finally, last week, we came to, came to the point of talking about how if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to understand this. Jesus was the ultimate leader. And following Jesus doesn't simply mean that you get in on the good things that he's ushering in, but that you imitate his example. And the example that Jesus set was that he always leveraged his leadership, his power, his authority for the good of all of those who followed him, for the good of all of those who were under his authority. And so we're to mimic that. We're all in different roles of leadership, and we're supposed to imitate that and be solid leaders like him who serve those under us. Well, today, as we wrap up, we're going to conclude with a really important question, and the title of the message is not the, the key question. It, it is appropriate because what we're going to talk about today is, you know, have you ever felt like unfollowing Jesus? You know, when you're in church, you expect us to sing about and talk about, oh, yes, we're followers of Jesus and we're going to follow Jesus. When, when everybody else turns back, we're going to follow him. But could we just be honest enough with each other to say 
that every single one of us is going to have times in our lives when we think about, or very likely, where we for a season stop following Jesus. Where we essentially hit the unfollow button. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not seasons, talking about seasons where you stop believing that Jesus is good or that Jesus is God or that He cares about you. I just mean where you or I disengage. And for virtually every Christian, there's going to come a time or multiple times where you seriously consider doing that. A bunch of folks in the room, some listening online right now could say, Oh, I can testify when I did that and how long that lasted. Well, today I want to share with you a story and specifically a key question that is so vital to ask and answer in the face of those times when we're really tempted to bail out, to just stop actively following Jesus. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. It's really one of the hinge points in Jesus' ministry, and it's also just one of the weirdest chapters of the New Testament. I mean, if you want to just go home and, and have your mind stretched a bit by the teachings of Jesus, go home and read all of John 6, and don't read it like a 21st century Christian who knows everything that we know now. Put yourself in the position of the people who were there that day, and imagine what it was like to hear everything that Jesus said in John 6. I'm going to tell you the story of about the first two-thirds of this very long chapter, and then we're going to look in some detail at the last portion. In John 6, early on, we get uh, one of the stories that you learned in Sunday school if you grew up in church, how masses of people had come to follow Jesus. There was, it was one of the high points in his ministry, and you know Jesus' name is on everybody's lips, and they're bringing the sick and the demon-possessed and the people who are troubled in all kinds of ways to get to Jesus because he can help. And as the movement has continued on, some of the people who have been trying to get to Jesus, if you can just picture, there are thousands now pressing in to get to Jesus. He's not meeting with them in arenas or with you know sound systems. And so it's, it's just a press of people. It's difficult to actually get to Jesus. He's ministering to people in terms of healing and delivers one at a time. So you can just picture, it's not a speedy thing. You're not going to go and in you know an hour get into Jesus and get out like a trip to the doctor. And so this is stretching out for days and what we get to in John 6 is that familiar story of Jesus feeds the 5,000 with one little kid's lunch. You remember the five loaves and the two fishes and how Jesus blessed that. And with that little bit of food, he fed the masses. And we all know the story. It's like, oh, isn't that cool that Jesus can make that little bit of food go so far. But when you read this story and you think about it, you come to realize how the power that Jesus possessed was something that you really had to think carefully about how to use it. And when you read the whole of John 6, you understand why he couldn't run around feeding people every day. Now, Jesus looked at the crowd, and some of these people had been for days pressing in, trying to get to him. And, of course, Jesus would be traveling as he would you know, minister. And so some of these people, they've left home, and it wasn't like they had decided, well, let's pack for a week, and let's bring along food for a week, because we're going to go hang out with Jesus for a week. No, it was one of those things. They heard Jesus was coming near, and they took off to try and catch him. And so now for some of these people, what was just a, a spur-of-the-moment thing, and then they were, they were captured by his words and, and just something about him, and they're seeing what's happening. They're seeing people healed. They're seeing lives changed. And it's like, wherever he goes, we've got to stay near until we can actually get to him for ourselves. And so now some people have been with him for days, and remember, they've brought the sick 
They brought the crippled. They brought the most diseased and weak people that they loved. And now these poor people who have a difficult time getting by day to day, their lives have really been stretched. And so Jesus sees this and he has compassion. And he says, some of these people aren't even going to make it back home unless we give them something to eat. We're going to need to do something outside the box. We're going to need to do something outside of what we normally do. And he looked at the disciples and said, feed them. And once again, it's one of those moments like, uh, have you bothered to check Jesus? Uh, we did not bring along a food wagon. There is no chuck wagon here. The best we have found is five little loaves and two fishes. You know that whole story. And so Jesus, he blesses what they have and he feeds the masses. And we all go, oh, isn't that neat? I would have loved to have been there. I would have wanted to be on the front row and, and seen how that worked. It, was it, you know, like slice the bread, slice it some more, you know, how does that work? That, that little bit feeds some. Don't know the answer to that. We do know this. It consistently will get the same kind of response. You take a crowd of hungry people who are oppressed. They live as a conquered people. They live in poverty. They struggle from one meal to the next. And this man who has an amazing ability to capture your heart when he speaks, but beyond that he has miraculous power to heal and to change people's lives. And oh my word, he can feed people from essentially nothing. With one lunch, he can feed an army. Holy smoke. You could take the world if you had a leader like that. And in a moment of time, they are ready to be that army. John tells us that when this had happened, the people determined on the spot that they would make Jesus king by force, is what John says. In other words, you know, we've been thinking you're going to be the king. You look like the Messiah. Your ministry looks like that of the Messiah. But hey, you just crossed the line. You put food in our hungry bellies and you proved that you could do it every meal of every day. We just found our meal ticket. We want to punch it. We don't care whether you're ready or not. We're about to make you king. And in that moment, Jesus disappears up the mountainside by himself. It's like, hey guys, you know, to the twelve... You take it from here. I've got to get out of here right now. And he disappears. And you can just imagine, you know, all these thousands of people and they're enjoying finishing up the meal. And it's like, where did Jesus go? You know, what's next? Well, seems like he's kind of gotten away. Where did he go? It gets dark. The disciples, on Jesus' instructions, they load up in a boat and they start heading across the Sea of Galilee and they get about three or three and a half miles out and a terrible storm hits. Jesus, I mean, I'm telling you, John 6 is just a weird day and night, a weird couple of days in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has not even reconnected with the disciples. He's going to connect with them on the, on the other side, but they're taking the only boat. Jesus is not going to be slowed down by that, so he comes down from the mountain and he sees them out, you know, three or so miles out on the water struggling. And Jesus just goes trucking out across the water, just walking on the water. Once again, just doing stuff we don't see Jesus doing at other times. It's just, he's got an agenda. And some water and a storm getting in the way is just not going to slow him down. And as he goes trucking onto the other side, he encounters the disciples and they get him in the boat and suddenly they make it to the other side. The crowd shows up the next day expecting surely Jesus is going to reappear and he's not there. And now they see the boat's gone and the disciples are gone and they put two and two together. Somebody figures out they've crossed over to Capernaum on the other shore, which again, Sea of Galilee is not a big place. It's kind of like if you were down on the beach in Daphne and you realize that somebody had made it across the mobile, that it's kind of that type distance. And they're realizing 
Okay, we've got to get over there as fast as we can. So a lot of them, it would seem probably at least hundreds of, of this crowd that had been many thousands, takes off to get to the other side, some probably on foot, many by boat. They get to the other side. It's the day after this massive feeding. And when they get there, there's this really weird exchange that just gets weirder and weirder with every paragraph. And, and they show up, and Jesus does not applaud them for having gone to all the trouble of crossing over to catch up with him. In fact, it's, it's, the, it's the version of Jesus that you would, if you're there in the moment, would be prone to kind of go, wow, he must not have gotten much sleep last night. I mean, this is just not friendly Jesus. This is Jesus with an edge. Because Jesus looks at them and says, I know why you're here. You came today because you got food in your bellies yesterday and you just want another food trick. You just want me to feed you again. That's why you came to the trouble of coming over here. Well, that didn't elicit a real warm, fuzzy response from the people, but it did call out what he was talking about because the, the people then say, uh, well, I mean, you know, Jesus, our forefathers, they got hungry just like we're hungry. And Moses fed them every single day for 40 days, fed them every meal. It's not like this is unprecedented what we're asking you to do. We appreciated lunch yesterday, but it's breakfast time and we're pretty hungry. In fact, it's kind of past breakfast now, and we really could handle some brunch. Eggs Benedict would be nice. You know, whatever you could whip up. We're just hungry. And Jesus is really getting more and more frustrated with every part of the conversation. Because he realizes these people have not come to truly be followers of his. They've come to see what they can get out of the deal. Which, oh, by the way, sounds a lot like many of the American expressions of Christianity, doesn't it? You know, I, I want in on Jesus just for what I can get out of it. And so he begins to call them out and let them know, I, I'm not fixing to do another food trick for you here today. What I want you to understand is I'm the bread of life. You came today because you wanted me to give you some bread, but I want you to understand I'm the bread. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And at this, the crowd begins to turn. You can just see them looking at each other going, he has not given us more bread today, and I don't like it because I am starving. No bread tricks for us today. And as he continues to explain about how he's the bread of life, some of them get mad. And the crowd now begins to kind of taunt him. And because Jesus is going on to say, you know, I am the bread of life, and he who receives and eats this bread will never be hungry again because I am the bread come down from heaven. And now they actually begin to, to answer back kind of sarcastically and say, we don't think so because we know who you are. We know your mama and your daddy. Your daddy's name was Joseph. Your mother's name was Mary. And that does not make you the bread of heaven. That makes you a carpenter from Nazareth. And from this point forward, from the perspective of the twelve who are getting excited because now we have thousands following us, it spins out of control. Jesus continues his sermon in verse 54, and we'll pick it up right there, and it's just going to get weirder and weirder. He goes on to say, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And at this point, you can just hear the crowd murmuring, I don't think so, Jesus. I don't think that's how you get eternal life. 
Okay, for just a moment, will you be real intentional to strip off the lens of being a 21st century Christian who knows the New Testament and who's received the Lord's Supper? You're in the first century. Jesus is basically a new teacher on the scene, and you're a part of the crowd who's trying to understand who is Jesus and what is His teaching, and here's His core teaching for the day. Do you want eternal life? Well, duh, yes, Jesus, I want eternal life. Well, here's what you've got to do. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's who gets eternal life. Okay, is there anybody in the room who is not completely freaked out at this point if you're in that crowd? I think I'm with the crowd at this point as they're going, okay, I thought this was a little too good to be true. This guy's a freakazoid. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. Jesus, that's not how you get to have eternal life. That's how you get to be accountable. This is sacrilege. We don't want any part of this. Can't you just picture the twelve in the middle of this crowd? They're getting really nervous. It's like, all right, Jesus, don't lose sight of things here. We need the crowd. If you're the Messiah, if you're going to to take over, we've got to have the crowd. There has to be an army of support around us. Don't lose the crowd, Jesus. Don't get too squirrely with your teaching here, Jesus. Verse 60, as Jesus has continued this, this train of thought, it says then, on hearing this, many of His disciples, when it says disciples, it's not talking about the twelve, it's the broader circle. Many of them said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Boy, the disciples have got to really be nervous now. We're going to lose the crowd. It's obvious people are fixing to start bailing Jesus. You've got to change this. I I just sort of picture Peter stepping in in that moment and saying, excuse us for one minute. We're going to step aside and have a little talk here. Matthew, would you go tell some tax collector jokes? We're going to take Jesus aside. He'll be right back with you. Jesus, come on, dude. Do you not understand what's happening here? The crowd was so behind you. They loved you when you were healing and they loved you when you were feeding them. But eating your flesh, drinking your blood, they don't understand that. And hey, by the way, we don't have a clue what in the world you're talking about. Would you come back down to planet Earth and talk about something that makes sense for us so we don't lose the crowd? And Jesus says, does this offend you? Is this too heavy? Is this too much? Is this past what you can grasp? We're getting to the hinge point in Jesus' ministry right here. Things are about to turn. Verse 66. From this time, many of His disciples turned back and they no longer followed Him. Right then and there, in mass, the entire crowd hits the unfollow button. Hey, we like the miracles. The healing was exciting. Seeing those demons come out of people, crazy. I'd come back for more of that. And the bread and the fish, mm, that was good stuff, Jesus. But when you turn this into some kind of cannibalistic lecture about how we've got to eat your flesh and drink your blood, we're out of here. Time out for me. I'm not sticking around for foolishness like that. And everybody hit unfollow. Everybody except in that moment, the inner circle of 12, they took off. And I've got to be figuring that at this point, as masses of people are just in a few moments, just turning and walking away, probably with their heads down, shaking their heads. I've got to figure that the twelve are thinking, you know what, this might be a good time for me to join them. 
Because the future looks bleak. I mean, we were feeling some excitement and some momentum. This has sort of been an up and down ride, but when we had the crowd, when we had thousands on our side and Jesus was doing what He had the power to do, and we've been wondering for so long, why did He not use this power for the benefit of many? I mean, He has the power to heal, but He'll only do it one at a time. I mean, certainly if He can control the elements, He could feed the masses, He could do whatever He wanted to do, but He would never do these massive miracles that impacted so many at one time. And He finally does... And in that moment, yes, it's what we want. Jesus is about to be king. Everybody in the audience knows that. And Jesus resists it. And now he's lost the crowd. He's lost all of the momentum. And he's gone off on some crazy, wild tangent about eating flesh and drinking blood. Maybe it'd be a good time to check out. Might be a good time for me as a disciple to hit the unfollow button. This passage, this moment is so relevant for us because we all have those moments. We all have situations come up where we're tempted to stop following Jesus. And they really tend to come in three forms. And we could just walk through each of the main scenarios of life where we're tempted to stop following Jesus. And I want to just mention those to you. And you'll probably recognize at least one of these that for you has been a real season of decision. And, and the first one that's an obvious one would be times of transition. To you graduating seniors, boy, this applies to you in such a big way right now. When you go through the major transitions of life, and one of the biggest ones is when you graduate from high school and you go away to college. And suddenly, most of the dynamics of your life change. Up until now... You three guys that are graduating, you have had a strong system of family around you and of church family around you who have supported you, who have encouraged you in your faith, and so much of that has felt so secure. And it's easy to sort of be lulled into a position of feeling like this could never be shaken in me. And I promise you, in the next four years, it'll be shaken at levels that you didn't imagine possible. How many in the room know what I'm talking about that's over the age of 21? You graduate from high school and you have a faith that is steady, solid, it is real, and then you go through the transition of graduating and you go to a place where everybody around you doesn't love Jesus. And going to church and studying the Word and seeking the counsel of God isn't primary in their lives. And they're having fun and life looks good that kind of transition. Graduating from college can be a transition that, that can lead us to a place of not following. Relocating from one city to another absolutely can be one of those transition points. A major change in life. I mean, think about it. Some of you have experienced this. You move from a place like here on the eastern shore where you have a church family and you've got a small group and you've got all these things feeding your faith. And then you move away to take another job. You move to the Midwest. You move to California or something. And suddenly you find yourself in an environment where you're not surrounded by people who love Jesus and are seeking Him. You find yourself surrounded by people that you know, are nice enough that make good friends, but they just don't value the same things. And here's the deal. Don't miss this. The, the issue is not that you may come to a point of going, oh, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't believe the Bible anymore. I don't believe God's loving. I don't believe God's faithful. You don't think any of those things. That is not what happens in that time of transition. The bottom line is, it's just not convenient anymore. 
It's just not what's valued around you anymore. And without meaning to, you find yourself so quickly with a new set of habits. Participation in the life of a church, being involved in a small group, having accountability in your life, the disciplines of prayer and personal Bible study, they just evaporate and you never set out to do it. What happened? You never had a day where you said, I think today I'll unfollow Jesus. But you know what the net effect of it is? Your life has changed as drastically as if you pressed the button on a given day. You look back and go, wow, six months ago I was following Jesus. And today, in practical terms, I'm not following him at all. And all that got you there was just a transition. It was a transition where you didn't chase after the world. You didn't set out to chase after bad stuff. You just changed environments. You went away to college, you graduated from college, you relocated, whatever, and now you find yourself not following Jesus anymore. Transition will do it. A second thing that will do it is an unhealthy relationship or relationships. It can be having a, a peer group that over time you just come to realize they don't value a relationship with the Lord. They don't value church and, and things that feed your faith. And so just being around them tends to pull you away from that. You know, on a beautiful day like this, hey, they're going out in the boat, they're going down to Robinson Island, and they're going to be having a blast at the beach. And they're always inviting you to go, and you're the stick in the mud who's always going, no, I've got to go to church. And, you know, over time, their lifestyle begins to look more appealing, and it just starts pulling you there. And it's not that you quit believing in Jesus. It was just the pull of that relationship. You know, let's be honest, that's not even the more dangerous version of the relationship problem, you know what is. You fall in love with somebody who's not following Jesus. They're a good person. And they told you all about the story of how umpteen years ago they got baptized and they invited Jesus to come in their heart and they're going to heaven. And you can't see any evidence that they're following Jesus because in truth they're not. It was just to satisfy your convictions that you got told the story of their baptism and how, oh yeah, they're Christian because, well, they're not Hindu or Muslim or something else, so they must be Christian and they got baptized in a Christian church, so that must make them a follower of Jesus when, in fact, they're not. And you just get so in love with them and you're so in love with them that you do what married people do and now you're so enmeshed with them and you start to look around and you realize, I never quit believing in Jesus. I never quit believing in His standards for my life. But I sure don't feel like seeking Him. My prayer life's gone down the drain and I don't have any interest in reading the Word and church just looks like nah, another thing to do. And it's no great mystery how you got here. You've got this conviction going on here and here from the Holy Spirit that's showing you, boy, this relationship is pulling you away. It's like, oh, Lord. I mean, anybody can be a follower of Jesus, but not just anybody can be that hot. Not just anybody can be that cute. And now you feel the dilemma. Ugh. I don't want to lose this relationship. And if I keep following Jesus, how can I hang on to him? How can I hang on to her? And then there is a, a third thing that will tend to cause us to want to hit the unfollow button. And that is seasons of great trouble and distress. We're not talking about the little bumps in the road. I mean the big stuff where your marriage is on the rocks. 
and you're praying and believing God to heal it and it doesn't get any better. Worse still, you wind up separated or even divorced. How could that be? I prayed about it. I asked God to bless this. We went for Christian counseling, you know, and it didn't work. There's an illness, you or somebody that you love, and it's bad. The prognosis is not good. You pray about it, and you're trusting God with it. And this really, it needs the touch of God, and it doesn't get any better. Sometimes it has a terrible outcome. You've prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God for a child, and finally you get pregnant, and you're just every day begging God to protect this child that you're carrying. And then you get the news that you've miscarried. These kinds of things happen and it really does rock our world because for most of us, we've always believed if I pray and I trust God with it and I obey God the best I know how, it's going to work out, right? I mean, isn't that how it works? If I commit something to God and I pray about it and I trust God with it, it's supposed to work out, isn't it? In real life, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the sickness remains. Sometimes the child is lost. Sometimes a loved one dies. Sometimes the marriage dies. Sometimes the person that you knew you were going to marry, you knew that was the one, and they break up with you. And now you've really got some big questions. Why, God? I trusted you with this. I asked you for this. I trusted that you would do good. This hasn't been a good outcome. And now you really start having some major issues of, you know, why should I pray? What good did it do? Why should I seek the Lord? What's the point of going to church and reading the Bible? Because it didn't seem to change the outcome in the most significant circumstance of my life right here. And in a season like that, you know what we're really prone to do? Click. I don't think I'm going to follow right now. And it's not necessarily you saying, I don't want to be a Jesus follower. It's just in that moment, you don't want to do any of the things that a Jesus follower does. There's just nothing left in here that wants to do that. And we're all going to face those moments. All of the followers of Jesus in Scripture did. I've got a feeling everybody following Jesus on this day in John 6 felt that way. I can think of two seasons in my life in particular when I wrestled with the very thing that we're talking about. One of them when I was, was when I was 17 years old. It was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, and I got to take part in something that was called the Capstone Summer Honors Program at Alabama where they, they take students that have got good GPAs and, and good ACT scores, and it's a little select group that they let go to college and be a part of this little unique community and you get to be around some really smart students. And so I, I really loved getting to do that as a 17-year-old. I, I liked a lot of these people that I was around. Really, really smart students. These are folks that the university's trying to, to get to make a long-term commitment there because they're really bright. And so I'm, I'm thrilled academically and socially by, you know, what's going on there. And was kind of shocked because I led such a sheltered life, always in church and just, you know, relationship with Christ at the center of everything. And suddenly as a 17-year-old thrust into living in Mary Burke dorm and uh, just experiencing the whole college campus scene and being with this little 
little community of people who were so bright and discovering I couldn't find a one of them who had an interest in openly living out their faith or following Christ. And it wasn't that these were bad people that I didn't want to associate with. These were smart, neat people that I was enjoying getting to know. And I just remember as that summer unfolded, feeling pulled in two different directions because I had this faith and I, my heart was very much dialed into wanting to follow Jesus and yet I would have felt completely immersed in an environment that had... It wasn't that they hated Jesus or spoke against God. It was just that that was not even on the menu. It wasn't a part of the dialogue for them at all. And I just remember feeling this tug of it's like, my life is going to go one of two different directions here. And I've always been so sure that it would go the Jesus route. But man, there's a part of this that looks like it would be a lot of fun to just see where this goes. This other road that all my friends are on. I remember the pull in both directions. I'll tell you the other time when I have felt the tug. That, that was just a time of transition that was the issue. But two and three years ago for me was a season where it was both a season of transition but also a season of great difficulty that I felt a similar kind of tug. We're going through the whole thing of, of great marital difficulty and then separation and finally divorce and and losing uh, a job and having to transition out of that, just that whole season of, of a, just that sense of great loss and uh, everything feeling like it had been turned upside down. There was never a moment in that process where I felt like, oh, God isn't good or God has quit loving me or God has been unfaithful. It was none of those things. There was never a moment where I thought, I'm just mad at God or I just... I'm ready to turn my back on God. I'll tell you what it was like for me. I just found myself getting up every single day and it being a struggle to have any desire to open the Bible. It being like climbing a mountain to actually sit down and, and actually pray and connect with God. And every Sunday morning, I'm not pastoring and it's Sunday morning and it's time to go to church. And nobody's really going to know the difference whether I'm at church or not. And it feeling like the most difficult day of every single week, Sunday morning, to have to get up and go alone to church. To a place that, you know, didn't feel like I belonged. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The, none of that time, there, there was no sense of, I think I just want to abandon Jesus. It wasn't that. But in reality, my heart was wanting to click the unfollow button. It wasn't that up here I said, I don't want to follow Jesus. It's just, I don't feel like I have anything left in the tank. Nothing that makes me want to read the Bible. I continue to read the Word daily. Don't want to go to church. Continue to go to church weekly. Really, really don't feel like praying. Had to learn to pray really short prayers. Real, honest, short prayers. Boy, it was very tempting for at least a season to just completely let go of all of those things. And we all tend to have those, those moments in life. So, Jesus asked the question of the disciples in verse 67. So, do you want to leave too? You don't want to leave too, do you? Do you guys want to bail out? 
the crowd just left. Are, are you all wanting to bail as well? Jesus was the master of knowing what people were thinking. And so he would ask or say something that cut to the heart of the matter before they could say it out loud. So you better be careful what you're thinking around Jesus because he'd just go ahead and jump right in the middle of your thoughts. You guys wanting to bail too? And Peter's response is the heart of the matter today. Peter, who never, he wouldn't always know what to say, but he wouldn't let that slow down his mouth. He would always speak up. And on this day, he hits a home run. Peter speaks for the crowd, for the, for the twelve, when he answers Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? It sounds kind of insignificant, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it almost, in a way, sounds kind of pitiful on the surface of it. It's like, you know, you want some giant statement of faith when Jesus goes, well, everybody just bailed out on the same day. We're down to you, 12. You guys don't want to leave too, do you? And Jesus, uh, Peter's classic response to Jesus. Lord, to whom would we go? Who else are we going to follow? And at one level, you could kind of go, wow, that's a great commitment, Peter. <laughs> well, we can't find any better than you to follow us. So I guess we'll follow you one more day, Jesus. No, there's really a lot more to it than that. Peter is asking the key question. Seniors, if you don't remember but one thing from this message today, remember the words of Peter. To whom shall we go? If we're not going to follow you, who are we going to follow? It's like, yeah, we thought about leaving. We really did. We don't know what's coming next. But then I started asking myself the question, if I don't follow you, who am I going to follow? Seniors, you're going to wind up in college classes and you're going to find that there are a lot of bright people teaching in college who have got all kinds of degrees, some of them more degrees than a thermometer, and they're going to seem to be incredibly wise. And I'm just going to say it straight. Most of them are going to do their best to disprove your faith. It's just like a pet project in college. They want to disprove Christianity and make your faith shaky. And along the way, they can be very effective in making you feel foolish. And I just want you to, to remember this. That those men and those women, they may be smarter than you, that does not make them righter than you. They may be more intelligent than you. That does make, not make them wiser than you. I remember being a college freshman. And I remember sitting in those classes. I remember sitting in an Old Testament course at the University of Alabama. And a very smart man who spent every day that we went to class, rather than even just at an at a a level of literary appreciation, teaching the Old Testament, even as a literary work, he spent every day seeking to disprove what the Old Testament taught and show us that it was not true. I'm thinking, dude, you went in the wrong line of work. You ought to be teaching anti-Old Testament. That's what you're doing. Every day he did that. And he had all of these arguments that on the surface of them seemed to make sense because he had spent years perfecting this. You feel so small because it's like, oh, this man's so much smarter than I am. How do I, how do I respond to that? And you try to, and he'd make you look so small. I just want you to remember, maybe smarter than you. It doesn't mean they're righter than you. 
over time and looking into a lot of the things that he said, I've come to realize the huge flaws in so many of the things that he said. There wasn't good academic work behind what he was saying. It's just almost like parlor tricks to, to try and say, oh, look what this is, but then look at this and then look at the evidence that we have. And, and it's like, you know, if we keep enough things moving at the same time, we'll make it confusing for these students. I want to tell you, this applies to some of us that are way beyond college. If there are things that you have stopped believing and have caused you to, to really step back from actively following Jesus because of something that you heard in a lecture hall on a college campus, and you didn't stop somewhere along the way to ask the question, if I stop following Jesus, to whom shall I go? You made a bad mistake. Peter's being asked the question, are you guys going to bail out? And he asked the right question in response. If we bail, where are we going to go? This is the issue for you and me because, you know, the payoff may not look that great right now. There may not be anybody patting you on the back saying, attaboy, keep it up. And it does look easier to walk away. But if Peter were here today, I think he would say to us, before you walk away, before you give up on this thing, you'd better ask the question, if not Jesus, who? If not Christianity, what? Because I promise you this, any age, any stage of life, you quit following Jesus, you will start following someone or something. There is no alternative. Students, you're going to follow someone. You're going to follow something. And so before you bail on Jesus, as we'll all be tempted to do at times, you better make yourself answer the question, if not Jesus, then who? Stop to consider your options. Jesus, in the, in the end of verse 68, says, You alone have the words of life. It's like Peter's just remembering as he's saying this. You know, I remember the day, Jesus, that you came into our lives. You remember we were fishing that day. We were, we were actually cleaning our nets, and you had been teaching. And along the way that day, you looked at us, and you invited us to come and follow you. You said that you were going to teach us to fish for men. And it's as if we, for the first time, fully became alive starting on that day. I mean, up until that day, we just fished for a living. We didn't exist for anything bigger than ourselves. It was just trying to catch enough fish to make enough of a living to feed our families and keep a roof over our heads. It was just existence. And we didn't really begin to live, Jesus, until you showed up and said, come follow me. And your invitation, Jesus, it was as though you invited us to step into history. It's as though in that moment we stepped out of ordinary existence and into God's great story, God's great narrative. And now we're kind of ruined by that. We could never just go back to mediocre living. I mean, what's the alternative, Jesus? You're asking if we're going to bail out to bail out to what? Do you think for a minute I could go back to just fishing for a living and just live the rest of my days catching fish, eating fish, and then one day I die? Do you think I could be happy with that? No, Jesus, you alone have the words of life. I couldn't go there. Peter's come to the conclusion that we all need to make, and that is, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I do know this, I'd rather live for something than die for nothing. That's a good realization, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather live for something that costs you than live your whole life and end up dying for nothing? I'd rather follow you and die for you than just live and die for nothing. 
Peter's saying, Jesus, you've invited us to something bigger. You've invited us to take part in something grander. And this is such a profound realization for us to realize Jesus, with his invitation to your life, he wasn't inviting you to just get dunked in a little baptistry. He wasn't inviting you to just belong to a church. He was inviting you to actively have a role to play in the greatest story that's ever been told. It is the narrative that began with God saying, let there be light. God speaking everything into existence. This grand narrative which climaxes with the sacrificial death and then resurrection of the sinless Son of God. And in this narrative that is changing the world, the entire planet is being transformed as we speak. And Jesus says, I'm the one making all of this happen and I'm inviting you. Follow me. Have a role to play. You are a key player in this grand narrative that is being told. Wouldn't you rather live for that than bail out when it gets hard and just kind of follow whatever? I mean, when you boil it down, it's really this simple. The Savior of the world has called you to get on board and join Him in what He's doing. And for most of us in the room, probably most listening online, we've participated in that. We have had an active role to play in what the Savior of the world is doing to redeem the world. And somewhere along the way, something happens, some difficulty, some relationship, some transition. And it's kind of like, uh, I just I don't know. I don't feel as drawn to that stuff anymore. I'm just not sure I want to stick with that. I think I'm just going to sort of ease back into the shadows over here. No. You've been a part of what the Savior of the world has called you to do. What are you going to accept as the alternative? He's invited you to life and meaning and purpose. What in the world is going to possibly match up to that? What would possibly satisfy your soul? Peter concludes by saying, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think at this point Peter's realizing... Jesus, we could follow the crowd today. We could bail. We could walk away right now. But you know what? We'd be back in a week or a month or a couple of months because I just can't go fish the rest of my life. I can't settle for just going to synagogue and just leading that life. I would hate for the rest of my life this moment of time if I stopped following you. Because this would be the defining moment. I would want to do anything in my power to get back to this moment to undecide what I have decided to do. Transition, temptation, trouble, all of these situations that we've talked about, they will create questions. They're they're going to. They're going to create hard questions and that is okay. They're always going to do that. But don't let those questions become the reason that you bail out, that you stop following. In those times of trouble and transition, we're wanting to ask, you know, where is God? Why would God allow this? Why is there no justice? Why don't I see God answering my prayers? And there's a real good chance you're not going to feel and know good, solid answers in those moments of crisis and transition. Here's what you need to know about that. That just because you don't have the answers doesn't mean that there are no answers. Chew on that one. Just because you don't know the answers in that moment doesn't mean that there are no answers. It just means you don't have them yet. So it's like the crowd could say, Hey, Peter, 
If you stick with Jesus, what's going to happen now? There's not a crowd with Him. I don't know. And it doesn't even look real promising. Okay, and you're still going to stick with Jesus? Yeah, because to whom would we turn? To whom would we follow? Who would we, who would we go to? Well, Peter, if you lose the crowd today, how is Jesus going to be the Messiah? How could this possibly play out for good and for your benefit? I don't know. Well, Jesus, uh, Peter, it, it looks like you could lose everything along the way. Yeah, it does look that way. Well, how are you going to live if that happens? I don't know the answer to that. But just because it looks that way doesn't mean it's going to turn out that way. And just because I don't have the answers doesn't mean that there are no answers. And in your life, when the enemy is whispering in your ear, well, it sure does look like God abandoned you this time. You've lost your love. You've lost your career. You've lost your home. Sure looks like God forgot about you and abandoned you. Yeah, it does. It looks a lot like that. But just because it looks like that doesn't mean that God has abandoned me. I don't have the answers as to how this is going to work out. But the fact that I don't have the answers doesn't mean that there are no answers. And when we're wrestling with these really hard questions, just remember, hey, considering the options will help to bring clarity. Think it through. Man, I've got all these questions. Why has God not answered? Where is God? Why did He let this happen? All fair questions. But why don't you follow it all the way through to Peter's question? Jesus' question to Peter. Do I want to bail on Jesus? Do I just want to completely back away? Well, I could do that. That actually looks good. It looks appealing. Would you agree with me on that? That there are times where, where ceasing to do the things that a follower of Jesus would do looks pretty appealing. Am I the only person who's ever felt that way? Anybody besides me ever just feel like, I, you know, not praying, not reading the Bible, not doing what a Christian should do, that that just looks pretty stinking good. It does look good at times, doesn't it? Well, let's consider the options. If I quit following Jesus, can I possibly just stay in neutral and follow nothing? Nope, I'm going to follow somebody. I better think this thing through. If it's not Jesus, who's it going to be? I've got to ask the question, if I unfollow Jesus, to whom shall I go? If not Jesus, who? If not Christianity, what? And until you can answer that, don't you make a move. Students, when you're tempted to unfollow, until you answer the question of who you're going to follow, don't you dare make a move. I think back to the two examples that I gave in my own life. As a 17-year-old at the University of Alabama, as a 43- and 44-year-old living on the eastern shore, two pivotal times in my life, it was very tempting to just shift into neutral to just disengage and stop following. In both of those pivotal times, I didn't, though that looked really appealing, though there was so much in my system that just wanted to go, just not right now. Just not, not now. I just don't need to have to try and do anything. I didn't unfollow. And let me tell you how glad I am. I know this, I would have spent the rest of my life wishing that I could go back and change that decision. If I had stopped following Jesus, I know that about you. When you hit that pivotal time of decision, that time of transition, of temptation, of real difficulty, if you bail on Jesus, there will be a time in your life that you'll look back and you would do anything to change that decision. Because think of it this way. 
What are you going to come across in life that you're going to change your focus to? Because if you stop following Jesus, your focus is going to go somewhere else. What is it you're going to buy into that years and years down the line you're going to go, Whew, I sure am glad that I quit following Jesus so I could spend all my time and energy chasing this beautiful woman. Yeah, check her in 30 years. See how happy you are in that decision that everything went into chasing a hot woman or chasing a hot car or chasing your career. You tell me the thing you're going to chase other than Jesus that as you get later in your life that you're not going to look back and go, hmm, that may not have been the best trade-off I ever made in my life. That may not have been my best decision. Choosing to follow Jesus. It's going to cost you something. It will. It's in the fine print. He made it clear. Following Jesus will cost you something. But you remember this. Choosing not to follow Jesus will cost you everything. To whom shall I go? To whom shall we turn? Will you too stop following? If we don't follow you, to whom shall we go? Jesus' teaching today to turn so many away was a confusing thing that could not make sense in the moment. Only with the following months and the events that would unfold on a hill outside of Jerusalem would it make any sense. The call of Jesus to follow has this really odd twist that there is an invitation to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. Cannibalism sounded like it to those followers. He wasn't calling us to cannibalism. He was tapping into such a fundamental key concept in life. You experience this every day of your life, that in order for you to live and to be strong, something else has to die. Period. Plants and animals have to die for you to live. Because you're going to put them in your mouth. Because short of doing that, you can't survive. Something else has to die in order for you to live. And Jesus was tapping into that fundamental truth. Every day of your life, you're going to need something to sustain you, to strengthen you, and something else dies for you to do that. And Jesus was using that imagery to say, you don't get this yet, but I want you to begin to have to wrestle with the idea that for you to live in the grander scheme, in eternity, for you to live, something else has to die so that you can live. And that something is me. I'm going to die on your behalf. And he took the idea even further. He's like, when you receive bread and when you receive the cup, I want you to remember something had to die. Someone had to die so that you could be forgiven, so that you could live. The blood, the cup is going to remind you that blood had to be spilled so that your sins could be forgiven. The price could be paid. The wrath of God could be satisfied and your sins could be washed away. And the blood does that when you receive the cup. Remember, remember my blood and live. And when you receive the bread, you remember my body had to be broken. And just as the children of Israel had to not only apply the blood, they had to eat the lamb, they needed the strength and the nourishment of the lamb on the inside, that you are going to have to have me living in you every single day to live worthy of me in the world. If you're going to do what I've called you to do, you've got to have me living in you. And so I'm calling you again and again. Receive my bread. Receive my body. Receive the cup. Receive my blood. And in doing that, remember what I've done for you. And so we do that today. We return to the table and we celebrate. 
we give thanks for what Christ has done. And we, in a very tangible way, we receive Christ again. He says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You can't have eternal life without knowing and receiving the one who died for you so that you could live. Today, we invite you to come and receive from the table as we continue in worship. And I want us to have a moment to just bow and pray together and prepare our hearts for that. Would you bow with me? We always want to make sure that we come with our hearts prepared, sins confessed, and just open to what God would say and do, meeting Him at the table and asking Him to receive us and fill us. So would you ask right now that the Holy Spirit would, in your life, show you any area of unconfessed sin and do a work of cleansing in you as you just take a moment to confess and make sure that you're right with Him. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace and forgiveness. And today, we give You thanks for the cross. And we confess to You our sin and all of the ways that we miss the mark and that we fail to live up to the the high standard that You've called us to. We ask today that You would forgive us. That You would remove anything that stands between us and You. And today, by faith, we enter into the righteousness of Christ Thank you that you cover us with that garment today. We give thanks for Jesus' broken body and for his shed blood, and we pray that today we would experience and receive Christ in a fresh way. Lord, today, would you satisfy us with your very self as we offer ourselves to you today in worship, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.